there, you Awakening Wonders. Over the month of September, I'm doing a handful of live shows that are a combination of spirituality, breath work, individual awakening, community building, and challenging authority. How do you bring down the system while bringing up children? How do you try to bring down Bear Grylls while you're on Running Wild with Bear Grylls? And Bear Grylls is much better at that stuff than you. How do we find new ways of challenging authority while trying to live normal lives? So I'll be doing stand-up, breath work, meditation, as well as conducting polls and votes because I believe democracy works. Are you happy with our current government? No. With you live in theatres like Hayes on the 12th of September, that's a little intimate London gig. I'm at Wembley Park Theatre on the 16th of September, Windsor on the 19th of September, Plymouth on the 22nd, and Wolverhampton on the 28th. To get tickets, go to russellbrand.com forward slash live. That's russellbrand.com forward slash live. The link is in the description. Stay free. Hello there, you awakened wonder. Thanks for joining me for a very special episode of Stay Free with Russell Brand. It's our conversation with Sam Harris, the intellectual neurologist, writer, and thinker, creator of the Waking Up with Sam Harris app. He gives away some fantastic free memberships to our community. So stay to the very end and become an awakened wonder by pressing the red button at the bottom of your screen right now to experience things like that. Now, of course, this conversation has already gone viral, particularly for those of you that watch it on Locals. You can watch these things first if you are an Awakened Wonder and a member of our Locals community. Now, if you're watching us on YouTube, the first 15 minutes will be here, but then I'm going to click over exclusively to the other place when we start talking about Trump, RFK, and the rise in populism. This has gone viral for a reason because it was a great conversation. But if you stay all the way to the end, to the bit in Locals, you'll see that we meditate together. And even after quite a hot conversation, we find people together. Also, there's a fantastic episode of Here's the News where we look at Biden's new drug negotiations and whether or not he really beat Big Pharma. You won't believe Kamala Harris's grandstanding speech and how it contrasts with the muted regulations and legislations that have been passed. Outrageous claims there. You're going to love all of it. But without further ado, let's move straight into our conversation with Sam Harris. Remember, if you're watching this on Rumble, give us a rumble, press the red button at the bottom of your screens right now and become an awakened wonder. Like the people that are watching this live. That's how they do those screen grabs and let it go viral on Twitter or X. Are you calling it X yet? Let's welcome Sam Harris to the show. Thank you for joining us, Sam Harris, you beautiful man. That's something I'm quite worried about. I'm not sure you and I would view the remedies in the same way. How do we get beyond this cavalcade of my experts versus your experts, my flag versus your flag, by acknowledging that we are all an expression of one unitary force? Mm. Mm -hmm. There's a methodology by which we would resolve those differences, and this shattering of our information space is making it very difficult to apply that methodology. The thing that I intuit is we are on the precipice of new models. No one is conducting that research at Pfizer precisely because it isn't profitable. Uh, Have a little look around the, the Wuhan laboratory for infectious diseases right. and check out how it's funded yeah, no, no, I, and I, how I, it's I'm regulated. About what I'm saying, but, but, but Sam, more important than that, okay. mate. I'm saying more that these are, these are domains of relative no. knowledge. Do you agree we should start by addressing the most powerful interests in the world that 
that seem to benefit more than ordinary people. Energy companies benefit when there's an energy crisis. The military industrial complex benefits when there's a war. We have to address this. We should let them get rich, right? And, and if, if you have no, okay. no, I know this is wrong. This I have to contest this, Sam. Thank you for joining us, Sam Harris, you beautiful man. Happy to be here. It's great to see you, Russell. When I met you, you uh, I remember in LA, you introduced me to Hiron Gracie, who became my yeah, uh, yeah. BJJ teacher, as long as, along with my teacher, Chris Clear, over here in the UK. I'm now a purple belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. You still rolling? Fantastic. No, I, I have not rolled since COVID, actually. Yeah, since I mean, I, I was I was racking up a bunch of injuries, and just I you know it, it, at some point it seemed like a choice between aging somewhat gracefully and not you know I just was getting neck injuries and hip injuries and so I just I mean it's, it's, and through no fault of Heron's obviously I mean he's he's the perfect person to roll with it's just I was it was just gravity at a certain point is not your friend yes you know, so. Um, yeah, I mean, I love it. it I, it's it's just one of the great losses of my life that I'm I'm not currently rolling, and I, I keep fantasizing about going back. But uh, it does it does worry me to go back. How, how have you been holding up? Or your how's your body? Pretty good. Like I, right now, my knee hurts a little bit, my left knee, and my left shoulder hurts a little bit. What I try to do when rolling is very near the beginning of the session establish a rapport with my opponent that I hope will translate into them on some level holding back slightly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, listen, I, I was, at some point I was only rolling with Huron, right? So, I mean, obviously he has nothing to prove. He's, uh, he can, he can win at will. So, um, I mean, it's the, he was the perfect teacher and as you know, and, and, uh, grappling partner, but yeah, it's just bad luck. I, I ascribe it to bad luck and, uh, bad genes. Mate, as this online space continues to evolve, the relationship that you have with Jordan Peterson, where two people with opposing views, uh, with perfectly valid perspectives on both sides, has somehow been mapped onto the entire internet space, but perhaps without the congeniality and goodwill that I assume exists mm -hmm. between you and Jordan. I, I wonder what your fears are as we increasingly, increasingly find ourselves in some irresolvable irresoluble cultural polemic that seems to be fueled in uh, by a will to impose, centralize, uh, uh, to, to accrue authority, to defeat without grace the opponent. How do you feel about this advancing space and how can we engage in conversations with people we don't agree with in good faith? How can we take mm. on board the views of those we disagree with and advance a mutual conversation? Or do we just accept now that centralized democracies such as America and the UK are finished and we have to start moving towards decentralized cultural and political models because there's just too much agitation elsewise. Well, yeah, I share your concern about all this. This is something I'm quite worried about. I'm not sure you and I would view the remedies in the same way, but I'm just going to sketch out what I think the, the remedy is. Um, I think we need to collect develop the ability to to worry about more than one thing at a time right so what I, what I keep confronting are people who focus on one part of a a troubling dichotomy uh take um 
the tension between censorship, which I know you're worried about, and misinformation. Right now, I would acknowledge, you know, that, that free speech is is almost an intrinsic good. It's certainly the the best best error correcting mechanism we have, and that we should protect it at almost any cost. Certainly politically, and yet there is this tension between misinformation and and really becoming waking up in a society that's one day ungovernable on the basis of misinformation, with it where we just cannot converge on a fact based discussion about anything because people are so siloed into their delusional echo chambers, and on the other side our efforts to correct for misinformation, which increasingly look like censorship and increase and increasingly are in tension with the, you know, the, 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 again, the, the almost intrinsic good of free speech, which we protect much better here in America than, than you do over there in the UK. Um, so what I'm continually finding are people, you know, we can talk about the left and right poles of the political spectrum as a as shorthand. It is not perfectly accurate now, but, um, people on the left and the right can only focus on one of these bright, shiny objects at a time, right? They're only worried about misinformation or they're only worried about censorship. They're only worried about wokeness or they're only worried about Trumpism. They're only worried about, uh, you know, respect for tradition or, you know, innovating on everything, right? So there's there are all of these things that are that represent trade-offs that, that where there, it's not a landscape of of very clear distinctions between right and wrong and good and evil, but we, where we just have to figure out how to tune things and, uh, you know, or a trade-off between individualism and a commitment to the common good, right? I mean, like if you, if you privilege individualism above everything else, you, you begin to lose your ability to create a society that any sane individual would want to live in, right? So it's like, if we respect your right to put smoke in the air above everything else, we have undermined my right to breathe clean air, right? There is a trade-off here. There's a, some amount of regulation I have to impose on you so that your enterprise doesn't fuck it up for everybody. And so there, again, there's, there's a tension here. And what I continually find, I mean, it's, it feels like 95% of people can focus on one problem and can't dignify any uh, mention of the, of the, the opposing trade-offs with uh, even a single sane sentence, right? And that, and that's, um, and our, and our online space has devolved into a, a you know, a, a polarized conversation about this landscape of trade-offs. I agree with you that these media silos are contributing to the inability to take on the perspective of the opposing side. And I think that no one's more guilty of creating these spaces than what are commonly, colloquially known as mainstream media spaces. Just today we were looking at a broadcast on MSNBC where it was openly posited and quite enthusiastically so that were Trump to win the election in 2024, that he would immediately declare himself president for life and therefore any opportunity to indict or indeed imprison Donald Trump will be lost forever. So nothing less than the future of democracy hung in the balance in the 20, forthcoming 2024 election. Now, this was the claims that were being made in a spa, uh, specifically on MSNBC and in particular it was uh, Rachel Maddow. And I feel like it perhaps would be more beneficial if what you want to encourage is a rational discourse to engage in, uh, to 
present rational arguments and in particular to be candid, open and utterly transparent about the shortcomings of the side that you yourself advocate for. If freedom of speech means anything, it means the freedom of speech of your opponents. And I think we've seen over the last few years terms like misinformation, malinformation and disinformation enter the public discourse, not solely because there are now miracles around communication and technology that mean anyone with an idea and a rhetorical flourish can reach previously unprecedented audiences, but also because these new models precisely mean that centralising and controlling any particular narrative is almost impossible. And the veracity of opposing information Mm. is indeed difficult to verify. I completely agree with you that we can't have single issue orators governing our space with sturm, drang and bombast. We do need to encourage... uh, We do need to encourage, I would say, inclusive discourses where people are, as I said in my initial question, are deliberately favouring the views of their opponent, willing to see where they can concede, willing to accept that my freedom may at some point impede on your freedom. What am I willing to sacrifice? Now, these ideas are precisely the kind of things that I turn to meditation for, Sam, and I know that you're here in part to talk in depth about your meditation app, which I, uh, I admire and I love and I use. And I feel that this precisely this kind of access to inner terrains that might provide us the ability to move beyond these spaces. One thing I'd also like to uh, challenge, if I may, is that this, these left the dis, the distinction between left and right evol- uh, devolving into periphery versus centre. To use Martin Gurry's terms there from his book mm-hmm. Revolt of the Public yeah. is significant. That what we have now is anti-authoritarianism versus authoritarianism, and I feel that once that gets mapped into a meaningful political system, it's going to mean, to a degree, the devolution of power, further federalization and an ability for communities to govern themselves. I said a lot there, Sam, but I know you can handle it. So um, please let me know what, what that uh, yeah, yeah. provokes. Yeah, no, I would I would take that that reframing, certainly up to a point that, you know, as I said, left and right don't really cover the, the landscape very well at this point. And so there is this this anti-authoritarianism, I, w- I would say, and, and, and there's a contrarianism. There's an anti-establishment bias now, both on the both on the right and the left. There's a a distrust of power. There's a distrust of institutions, um, and it's understandable because our institutions have have failed us in in obvious ways. Certainly, they have they have um, They've proven themselves at certainly at moments untrustworthy. So the loss of trust is is understandable. But uh, what I would say is that the corrective we need is not to tear everything down. We need institutions we can trust. We need to figure out how to reboot our institutions so that they are trustworthy, so that they're worthy of trust, and so that people actually trust them. And what I'm worried about now, given the the online tools we have and the democratization of everything. And the, and this almost a, you know apocalypse of of contrarianism is that even if we had trustworthy institutions across the board, we couldn't get a majority of people to trust them on any one point. Certainly not a point that is that is politically polarizing, right? So if we have a new pandemic, uh, how do we get ninety percent of of people to trust? the mainstream medical message about what is what the facts on the ground really are and how do we how do we get people to trust government public health organizations as they give us up to the minute information insofar as they know it 
And again, it's the, the basis for distrust is totally understandable because we witnessed one pratfall after another during COVID. But what, what I'm saying is that we need to get to, we, we absolutely need, and to speak locally in the US now, we need a CDC that we can trust. We need an FDA that we can trust. The fact that we can't, we feel that we can't trust these organizations is absolutely corrosive to the, the maintenance of a, a healthy society. And it certainly will put us in a position to fail once again to respond intelligently to the next pandemic. And I, what I worry about, again, what my concerns about COVID have, apart from the first few months when no one really knew what the hell was going on, um, my concerns about COVID have always been that it's a kind of dress rehearsal that we were obviously failing, right? And and, and I worry that we're not learning the lessons of that failure because I, I think it's all, it's just inevitable that we will one day have a pandemic that's quite a bit worse, and we we'll need to be able to respond with with uh, you know with coherence um, and learn to cooperate yeah, at a global scale. And I'm not sure we're we're putting ourselves in a position to do that. I do recall both in our nation and in yours, Sam, an incredible moment of goodwill at the commencement of the pandemic period, where people in sort of intuitively understood that we were facing something unprecedented, and that indeed the principles of every measure, whether it's masking or lockdown or medications, is human life is, if not sacred, I, I'm aware of who I'm talking to, certainly valuable in a somewhat unique way, which if not sacred... I, li so, I like sacred. <laughs> let's you, let's you go with sacred, sacred with me without apology. Because yeah. if it isn't sacred, we're going to have to work out what the hell it is that makes human life right. so worthy of preservation. So we'll go with sacred for the for the purposes of this conversation. Uh, and the, uh, the, any personal imposition is as nothing compared to our collective value and our joint duty to protect the vulnerable. But of course, what we saw, and this is just a few points I'm tracking, and I, I know that you're a busy man, but I'm sure you're broadly aware of the kind of media that I engage with and convey is like the mm. Albert Baller, CEO of Pfizer, said it would be reprehensible if there were any profits made by Pfizer. And I think we all know that there were profits made by Pfizer, that the uh, that their, that their legal indemnity for any potential vaccine injury caused a lot of suspicion. The very fact that the FDA is significantly funded by the pharmaceutical industry causes a great many people concern, skepticism and cynicism. There are figures within the CDC, NIIH, that have a, uh, well, this is to uh, one of our viewers here on the Locals platform, Primal Collins says, you know, that to get the kind of trust that we require, you would want no revolving door between corporations and in this instance, big mm -hmm. pharma. And, and, and in, in, if you are right, and you know, who's and it's, it's sort of certainly across infinite time, you, you, you are, that there is another, that there will be another pandemic. I suppose personally, what I would want is a real transparent, candid mea culpa about this is how we handled it. This is what we did wrong. This is what we'll never do again. This is what we exploited. This is how it was handled incorrectly. These were people that were shamed that shouldn't have been. That should never have been said. These companies should never have profited. Moderna should not have been invested in by a person who's now the prime minister in the UK. He set up a hedge fund that um, funded Moderna. Uh, none of those companies should mm -hmm. have profited from a disaster of, these of this nature. Certainly public politicians shouldn't have been partying during a time while the rest of us were uh, locked down. And we must radically redress the, uh, the ability that Big Pharma has to influence policy because I recognize that no one's going to trust uh, they're going to trust these government medical agencies until that's remedied if they if that kind of conversation took mm. place I think that th th that would go some way towards it do you think that's a possibility and do you think that's a fair assessment uh I agree with the spirit of that it, it would be hard to fashion a mea culpa 
so comprehensive that it satisfied everyone who was waiting for it. Because I think we're, we're going to, as a society, we're going to disagree about what the facts are still. So we're not in possession of the same set of facts. Like if I were to ask you or your listeners, how many people they think died in uh, in America or the UK from COVID, right? I think we, we would we'll, we would see something like a a bell curve distribution of of assumptions, and we would would find it very difficult to agree, even just about that simple, you know, propositional claim. Just how many people died from COVID, right? We're, we're suddenly going to have a conversation about the difference between dying from COVID and with COVID, and can we, you know, and were people perversely incentivized to report deaths that were, you know, one versus the other? Um, but what you pointed to in your in your comments about pharma there are. Uh, a set of perverse incentives that we have to worry about. I mean, so the profit motive in pharma is something that you, many of us, or probably all of us, when we look at it, are uncomfortable with. Um, but it's also not clear how to incentivize drug discovery in a way that works that 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 dissects out that perverse incentive, right? So yes, I, I was, I'm, I was totally uncomfortable with the idea of of you know, a pharmaceutical company enjoying windfall profits during a pandemic and racing vaccines to market, uh, knowing that billions of dollars were you know, waiting to hit the cash register. It's easy to see what could go wrong with that. And that, again, this is why we need an FDA and a CDC and other regulatory organizations we can trust. Uh, and your revolving door comment is, is totally valid, uh, except the issue is there are only so many ex domain experts, right? So, what what sort of jobs do they get when they when they transition, right? And who do we want to be doing this research when and and to be and to be uh, deciding about regulation apart from people who know all of the details of this research? Um, and you I mean, take a simple case. But let's take it off COVID for a second because that's so highly politicized. But take the fact that we we as a society desperately need to create a, a new generation of antibiotics, right? We have had, we've you, for as long as you and I have been alive, we've lived in this, this bright, shiny moment where uh, infectious disease has been radically curtailed by, by us having a, 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 a very solid armamentarium of antibiotics that work, right? If, if the first antibiotic doesn't work, there's one behind that, and there's one behind that, and there's one behind that. But in the last, I don't know, 25, 30 years or so, we have witnessed the, this growth of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and we know we don't have a good pipeline for developing new antibiotics. The reason why we don't have a good pipeline is because the, the, the drug companies can't be appropriately incentivized to do the work and, and to spend the money to develop these drugs because this next antibiotic, you know, the seventh antibiotic in line, when all the other ones fail, when you get some weird lung infection, right? Uh, and, and you've gone through six antibiotics and they haven't worked and we got one left, right? That, that, that drug, whose name no one can pronounce, that is a drug that maybe you will take once in your life for 10 days, right? It's not like Prozac, where you're going to take it for the rest of your life, or Viagra, where you're going to take it. It's, it's something that, that most people were, are never going to take. And the, oh, those of us who are unlucky enough to need it will take it once for 10 days, right? So there's not enough profit in this thing. And it takes a billion dollars to discover this drug, right? And bring it to market. Yeah. Um, so how do you get companies to do this? And what and 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 if if we were going to make governments do this, 
how badly would they handle that project, right? So it's again, this is a a, a problem of incentives and trade offs, and we have to figure out how to untangle all this in a way that preserves public trust in institutions. And it's, it is a hard problem. It's astonishing to me that it was once the role of the left to offer very ag aggressive critiques of those kind of models. And now they are entirely bereft of them, whether it's on the subject of war or the sort of immersive and disruptive power of big pharma. It no longer seems to be there, you know, whilst I, earlier on I did offer a, a, a alternative to, that, to those labels, as we discussed. It seems to me that any attacks on the militarism, particularly, you know, with regard to Ukraine, Russia conflict and uh, Mm -hmm. the, the role of pharma and corporations more broadly seems to be coming from the right. And that's just sort of extraordinary for me with my own particular political and cultural heritage. Um, and I also like yeah. to add, while I've got this opportunity, that I take neither Prozac nor Viagra on a daily basis. It's at most okay. once every other day. A chance would be a fine thing. Yeah. Um, we're going to leave YouTube now. So if you're watching us on YouTube, please uh, click the link in the description to join us on Rumble, where I'll ask, be asking Sam Harris about the popularity of of figures like Donald Trump, about whom he has spoken extensively, and Robert F. Kennedy. Why are we seeing this rise in populism? If you want to see how Sam's going to respond to that question, click on the link. Also, Sam's going to be giving away access to his Waking Up with Sam Harris meditation app, which is fantastic. So join us over on Rumble. If you're watching us on Rumble, press the red button and join us in our Locals conversation and consider becoming an awakened one that we get access to all sorts of additional content. And for a limited time only, a pair of underpants, which I will be offering you in a moment or two, Sam. But first, I, I want to get your perspective on the rise of populism and what that suggests about the uh, decline in establishment trust, which we've touched on. I feel like, you know, like Trump's a runaway leader in his own party. I feel like 80% of Republicans want to vote for Trump and something like 19 or 20% would vote for RFK in spite of the lack of mainstream media coverage of his campaign. So you have a significant number of Americans from across the political spectrum, narrow though I would contest that political spectrum is when you consider what's possible if you're a regular meditator. Uh, what does this tell us about uh, how bereft we've become of alternatives and what new ideas, what new conversations and what new alliances need to emerge in this new media space and how this could evolve into new political movements? But perhaps if we start with uh, what you think underwrites the, uh, the sudden surge in uh, populism, that, you know, whether it's left or right wing. Hmm. Well, I think there are a few variables. I mean, one is this siloing into echo chambers that that has been enabled by you know the internet broadly, but social media in particular. I, I think it's it's possible to stay in a silo now in a way that it simply wasn't a few you know a generation before. Even though yes, there there was uh, there was an opportunity to have your biases enshrined in just how you decided to to use the media, you know, in the past, but it's, it's just gotten worse and worse to the point where there's almost no Darwinian corrective to misinformation and lies now. Like you really can swim in an ocean of lies for as long as you want and nothing from the outside is going to intrude or, or certainly need not intrude. And so you have these hermetically sealed spaces of, of, of information and misinformation. And so we're not we're not um, converging on anything like a fact-based discussion about anything of importance now. And so you take somebody like Trump, now who to my eye is, um, it's not an exaggeration to say it, he is the most 
relentlessly dishonest person we have ever seen in public life. I and mean, he just lies at a, with a, at a velocity that uh, doesn't even make any sense, right? He does, I mean, not, most of, many of his lies aren't even self-serving, right? They don't serve his purpose. It's just, it's just this automaticity that he distorts the truth. Um, you know, he'll contradict himself in the span of 30 seconds. And he has cultivated an audience that simply doesn't care, right? They, this is not an audience that likes him despite his failures of personal integrity. It's an audience that mostly likes him because he is this chaos machine, right? That he's this, this kind of wrecking ball that is swinging through our institutions and our and our uh, our political norms and disrupting everything. And you know, so the question really is why do so many millions of Americans want to see everything disrupted in this way? And it does it does come back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago about you know, the distrust in institutions, some of which is, has been well-earned. Um, I think the role that wealth inequality and a sense of loss of opportunity is playing is, 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 is rarely remarked upon. It's amazing to me how little we grapple on either side of the political aisle that we grapple with the implications of, of wealth inequality now. And I, so I think that's, that is a, certainly a variable, but um, it's not, it's not a straightforward one. There are a lot of people who are not, you know, not at, at the bottom of our economic uh, strata that that uh, you know support Trump or support the the disruption of everything uh, and support this kind of populism uh, on the right. I think it's. Um, I mean, for me, the so the bright line with Trump and whatever you want to say about his character, and I've said many things about you know banged on for hours about Trump uh, to the boredom of of, of, of millions. Um, for me, there was a bright line that was crossed that I think everyone who cares about the future of democracy uh, and the maintenance of, of uh, American democracy in particular uh, should acknowledge. And it is this. We had a sitting president who would not commit to a peaceful transfer of power. Right. And repeatedly, he, he refused to commit to a peaceful transfer of power in the run up to the 2020 election. And lo and behold, we did not have a peaceful transfer of power. Um, based on the lies he told about that election. Now, I, you you can dispute some of this. How you know a partisan who who believes that the election was stolen from Trump, which for which there is no evidence. Um, you know, to the contrary, what was happening is he was trying to steal an election, all the while claiming it was being stolen from him. But leave that aside. Even a partisan who believes that the election was stolen from Trump has to admit. That in the run-up to the election, literally, literally six months before the election was run, we had a sitting president who would not commit commit to a peaceful transfer of power. Now that single act, I, I would say, it was so corrosive. It was such a violation of of our most sacred political norms, our most sacred and useful political norm. Right to to this is something that even Ronald Reagan, right, you know, somebody who you know used to be a darling of everyone right of center. Acknowledge. I mean, the, you know, he said this is, is somewhere in the, you know, I think the late seventies. He said, you know, the greatest miracle of our country is the peaceful transfer of power. It's the thing that makes us the envy of the world. It's the thing that that if you're sitting in some, you know, developing dictatorship uh, outside America's borders, it is the th basis for your envy. 
of America, or at least it was traditionally, that we could accomplish a peaceful transfer of power every four years, despite our political differences. This is, the, as far as I know, this is the first time in American history we had a sitting president who would not commit to a peaceful transfer of power, and so that was such a dangerous desecration of our political landscape that I think it should make it impossible to support Trump. Uh, whatever else you think about any other political figure, whatever you think about Hunter Biden's laptop, there's nothing else that rises to, the, to that level of concern. And uh, that's that has, has always been at the center of my argument against against endorsing Trump in any way. This is what I feel is comparable. And whilst you know, the sort of ongoing questioning around the Biden family business deals, I'm sure to anyone who's already encamped within one of those partisan scenarios will just cling to their own rhetoric and their own pre-existing beliefs. This is what my response is, which is like live tautology, actually, because I'm going to give you the response now, is that now Biden is in office and this inequality is continuing. And this polarization is continuing. And we are not seeing anyone say, look, we got carried away with Russiagate and that's probably really damaged your trust. And over the course of the pandemic, we've seen a lot of shifting narratives and we have not been as transparent as we ought to have been. And our lack of trust in institutions, as you have said, Sam, is something that needs to be addressed. And I recognize now that this ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine is hemorrhaging popularity. And many of you query, is this the humanitarian war that many claim in order to stop the criminal Putin? Or is this like so many other American wars, like the one in Iraq, like the one in Afghanistan, like the one in Korea, like all American wars up till now, actually motivated by unipolar objectives, a, a globalist corporate agenda, the advancing of the interests of the military industrial complex, an explicit plan for BlackRock to rebuild Ukraine post-war, and your tax dollars are paying for it, and the only person that and be it empty oratory and yet more lies. You know, I, I would. You know, I recognise what you. You know, what you're saying about Trump, and I'm certainly not going to try and change your perspective on anything like that. Because for me, none of these figures are the answer. Radical systemic change has to be immediately discussed, and we have to acknowledge that what's happening in media has to be replicated with what's happening with po politically immediately. We have to find ways of altering our systems of governance and having the maximum amount of dem democracy and access to power for ordinary people, rather than this continual mudslinging. I say that the only person or one of the few people who's willing to say this war must end is Donald Trump. If I was to extract the name and the face Donald Trump from his rhetoric around the war and how he would bring about a diplomatic solution, I would say this is the only person who's talking sensibly. And I just cannot extract everything I know about what happened in 2014 in that coup, about what Putin has publicly said about if, uh, if, if there's any infringement on Crimea, about the complexities, about ethnicity within Ukrainian territory, all of that. And with great respect and love and solidarity and support for those suffering in Ukraine and for the half a million that have died in that conflict so far. For me, dancing closer and closer to the apocalypse with dubious motivation, claiming once again that it's a humanitarian endeavour seems outrageous to me. And the fact that that, that for me, the fact that this is the alternative is a much bigger problem than anything Trump has done or said, because I do see him as an outlier, as an extraordinary ordinary public figure, but I see him primarily and above all else, a response to institutional corruption, entropy within our institutions.
institutions. Fun, like when, when Biden is able to meet with his donors and say nothing will fundamentally change when he succeeds Trump and as he does succeed Trump, you know, for all of your concerns about uh, the, uh, you know, the lack of a peaceful transition, I would say that is the problem. You know, if it was Donald Trump dies tomorrow, where are we? Addressing the kind of systemic problems that I'm wrestling with, I think could meaningfully alter the dilemma that you and I are trying to tackle. Hmm. Well, I, I, I certainly have different priors than you do about the, Ukra the war in Ukraine, right? So for instance, left out of your analysis is what the Ukrainian people themselves say they want, right? So you, this, this is a, an autonomous or you know, what it was an autonomous country uh, it was attacked by their neighbor, right? And certainly it seems that most of the people in Ukraine were not eager to be absorbed by Russia. They were eager to maintain their autonomy and their, their sovereignty as a, as a society. Now, I don't consider myself an, an expert on Ukraine. You know, I've gotten up to speed more or less as everyone else has in, in recent years. Uh, I've spoken with ex, you know, purported experts on my podcast several times. I, you know, somebody like Timothy Snyder, who takes a very different view of this war than than you just articulated, uh, very pro defend defending the Ukraine view, um, and other people like Ann Applebaum, and you know, I mean, these are people who are who are subject matter experts, but from I would imagine your point of view and the point of view of your audience, and certainly Trump's point of view, they're part of the blob that would be arguing for this war in the first place. But I would just make a few simple points. One is we're not fighting this war. The Ukrainians are right. We are arming them. Right. So it's different than having American boots on the ground fighting this war. Um, and I would agree that that is a bright line we really should not cross. Um, the other point here is that I think we this is a uh, once again, a domain of trade-offs where this is there's not at every moment clearly right and wrong answers to these very hard questions. There's one trade. There's a trade-off between giving in to nuclear blackmail and the whims of an authoritarian psychopath, uh, and not giving in to it and holding the line again, even in spite of threats to uh, you know usher in the the end of the world. Um, to hold the line in defense of a rules-based international order. Now, where whether we get that right or not is of some consequence, right? I, I, I would argue that it is worth worrying about what Putin's going to do with his nukes give it, as the temperature uh, increases over there. Uh, but it's also worth worrying that giving into nuclear blackmail sets a terrible precedent, right? Um, so how we navigate that is um, is... Again, it's it's hard, and you what you want are uh, not impetuous, no nothings, steering the ship at that moment. You want actual experts who understand the history of these kind kinds of conflicts, and understand everyone's relevant capacities and lack thereof. What understand what's likely to be bluffing, understand the incentives, and not understand what's Putin's likely to do next. Um, and still, that's not a science. That's an art. And we should be very, you know, the, the bigger picture here is we should be very worried about the nuclear status quo. The fact that we have a world that is, for as long as we've been alive, rigged to explode. Uh, forget about intentional nuclear war. We have a we have a world that can explode on the basis of 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 you know, misinformation and act and just sheer accident. 
right? Just just radars that malfunction it, it can it can steer us into a nuclear conflict. Um, it's terrifying, and it's something that we have to figure out how to address. But it, to treat Putin like he's just a normal actor with rational interests who we can deal with like any other uh, you know leader of a of a free society is just not accurate he is a person who murders his political opponents he murders journalists he's not a normal he's not a normally corrupt politician he's an autocrat and we and he's an autocrat who's armed with nuclear weapons who threatens to use them uh it's something that that we have to we have to treat as categorically different then we would treat a disagreement between us and France or the UK, us being the uh, being America in this case. I, I can I do have a concern that pathologizing the opponents of the hegemony as maniacs, whether that's Trump or Putin, is a shortcut to looking at some of the complex historical arguments, and just notably including the infringement upon the, not treaty, but deal between the former Soviet Union and America not to infringe on former NATO NATO uh, territories. And of course, the rights of the people of Ukraine are incredibly important, is, is after all them that are living and dying, and their intentions are in, uh, and their desire about their national sovereignty is utmost in everybody's concerns and considerations. And like whilst you cited the people you had conversations with, I would cite um, you know, sort of Jeffrey Sachs, who came on here with a couple of other Pulitzer Prize winning yeah. journalists who now would be lucky if they get a job on the internet with this curiously altering online space and media space. And what I feel has to be our um, shared obligation if indeed what we want is to bring people together who have currently opposing perspectives is to critique and address the systems rather than the individuals involved. Russia is a unique country as perhaps all countries are with a unique history and this is a truly a, this truly has the potential to be a global conflict and should be handled with extreme caution and I would suggest that we have to be open to the possibility that the the declared incentives and intentions of uh, uh, American unipolar interests are distinct from their actual interests. Privately, it's pretty clear that it's been acknowledged that the Ukraine counteroffensive is not going well. I think it's pretty plain that the military-industrial complex asserts incredible uh, power over the direction of American foreign policy. And I say that I would address this precisely how I would have looked at the conflict in Iraq. Who is benefiting from this? What are the relationships between the military-industrial complex and then Cheney, Bush, Warfowitz? And now, you know, the hue and flag and mule and elephant may have switched, but I see the same subcutaneous interests apparently running the show. But like part of what we're discussing more broadly now, Sam, is that you could bring a host of perspectives and opinions. And I, I recognise you have a great deal of academic heft in your own particular area of expertise. And I occupy a, an, an entirely different space. And, and my intention is I, I don't think that either political party is the answer. I don't have any alliances. The, um, the thing that I intuit is we are on the precipice of new models that allow us to forego the needless and irresoluble cultural conflicts that are currently dominating this space. I feel we have to get beyond uh, our, our judgment of one another for individualism, whether that's from a right-wing libertarian perspective or a left-wing identity politics perspective. I think we have to find a new way to navigate these spaces so that we can start 
addressing the truly significant issues that define our times, which may be sort of apocalyptic regarding, regardless of how you uh, approach this apocalypse, because that too would have a cultural flavor. Yeah, I, my concern is that the starting point for addressing any of those problems is a fact-based discussion about what the problems themselves are, right? So for instance, if you think climate change is a hoax, right? And someone else thinks climate change is one of the most pressing problems we have to address as a society. Somebody's wrong, right? I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's a, and it's, a, and there's a, there's a methodology by which we would resolve those differences. And this infer this, this shattering of our information space is making it very difficult to apply that methodology. I actually feel that even something as complex and uh, hotly contested, <laughs> ironically, as, as that issue could be resolved with this type of dialectic. Do you agree that when looking for solutions for problems that affect all of us, we should start by addressing the most powerful interests in the world that seem to benefit more than ordinary people? Always check what the measures are that are suggested in order to solve these problems. If the measures are we are going to impede the freedoms of ordinary individuals as a priority, we are going to tax ordinary people more highly, that is going to engender cynicism. And even the way the problem is described, I think most people people like particularly in our country conservatism the, the the sort of the right wing political movement is environmentalist they want to conserve the environment england's green and present pleasant mm. lands most republicans are nationalist we can find ways of not like bludgeoning people with like my science versus your science. Why did the inventors of MRNI vaccines get censored at the beginning of the pandemic? Why did these Johns Hopkins experts get censored? Why did these experts flourish? You know, instead of going on and on ad infinitum about that, so we are going to have to live on this planet together. It appears that there are a set of interests that continually benefit from crises. Energy companies benefit when there's an energy crisis. The military industrial complex benefits when there's a war. Big pharma benefits when and there's a health crisis. We have to address this. We can't have an ongoing system that is punitive to ordinary people with every single advancing crisis. That has to change. Otherwise, you're going to have ongoing cynicism and people, ordinary people with that wear different livery but have ultimately the same interest attacking one another while nothing significantly changes. Mm -hmm. In a sense, I think we have to find careful ways of moulding the clay of the argument with the intention of resolution rather than the intention of winning. That, I think, might be an important way that you and I, for example, could contribute. Yeah, it's, again, it's, it is truly difficult. I mean, what you're talking about are the effects of perverse incentives. And it is, it is it, to my knowledge, no one has figured out a, a way to categorically clean this space up. Right. So, again, I'll come back to the, the very simple and, and non-politicized example I brought up uh, a few minutes ago. Developing the next family of antibiotics, right? This this is it is apps it is massively resource intensive, right? It costs a billion dollars to bring one new antibiotic to market. How who do we incentivize to take the, to that risk? Many of the most of these drugs don't pan out, right? So you're you're a company like Pfizer. I would say we need a company like Pfizer to do that work, right? The alternative is to say the government should do that work. Now, the the very same people. Who who recoil from the perverse incentive of you know windfall profits 
to Pfizer when we have a, a you know when we have a pandemic are, so are some of the same people who will laugh at the prospect of of entrusting the government to develop our next generation of medical therapies right there's this there's this well understood principle that capitalism and the profit motive and the free market are the be among all the terrible ways to incentivize people they're the best ways we've discovered to incentivize creative people to get up early every morning and make the personal sacrifices they have to make so as to do the work that we need them to do to produce these the, the, this new knowledge generation but, and if you think you're and so it, there's some trade off between uh get, remunerating people for the risks they take and and the and the and the and the work they do and allowing despite the despite the obvious possibility of weird incentives allowing for people to get spectacularly wealthy when they get lucky based on their own intelligence right they 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 produce something that's immensely valuable to us a new antibiotic and we should let them get rich right <laughs> and and if if you have an alternative to that well by by all means uh, express it, but would, uh, to my knowledge, we, we haven't found one. I would like to express an alternative, but also outline a few things within your hypothesis. No one is conducting that research at Pfizer precisely because it isn't profitable. So this tells us precisely the mentality that governs at Pfizer. And when indeed there is innovation, you might find that it came from BioNTech in Germany, who were funded by the German taxpayers. And you might find that Pfizer's profits were mm. garnered by t t charging the American taxpayers who paid for that Pfizer, uh, apparent Pfizer innovation, but actually a BioNTech innovation anyway. So what I would say is, you wouldn't. it's not like the government, you get a bunch of giddy, silly, owned, revolving door, civil servant corruptos in on the gig. No, the way that Pfizer would fund universities, the way that Shell Oil fund our exhibitions, you would fund at the level of taxation in response to referenda, in response to a mandate derived from the people of America or the country of relevance and say, we want to spend this on developing this new antibiotic that we believe is going to help people. It's not going to be profitable for Big Pharma. You saw how those guys carried on in the last few years, right? So something needs to be radically reevaluated. And we, as sensible public intellectuals and true leaders, are offering you an alternative. We're going to, in fact, offer a one-time windfall tax that takes back the profits from Pfizer and Moderna. We're nationalizing those companies right now, and we will pay for our fine academic academies at Stanford, John Hopkins, Yale, Oxford and Cambridge to do this research. And when it works, and by God, it will work, you will benefit from it, not Pfizer, not Moderna, you, the good people of America. Mark the X in the box. We'll make sure we count every single vote. That's what, that's what, that's what I would suggest, Sam. But the very fact that that research isn't undertaken, okay. of course, identify the glitch in the machine that has to be addressed before all else. Well, well there, there is a glitch there. The, yes, the, the market is... Hold on one second. I've got to silence the phone here. Sam, we can use this opportunity to transition to the next part of our conversation. Sam, I want to talk a little bit about... Uh, the... Actually, Russell, I, I, needed to make, I need to make one point because I think it's very important. There, there's a very strange double standard that we all feel in this space where we think it's somehow morally appropriate for someone to get spectacularly wealthy when they create the new iPhone or they create a new, that. you know, block, but that was funded well, by the well, government. Is that was funded by taxpayers? That tech, I don't think that's right either. Mo they're, they're next on the list. Most and people, Google, okay. All okay, of them. Okay. But 
unless you're unless you're going to stigmatize wealth itself or private property itself, unless you're a communist, gargantuan. Most wealth. people have this not double communism. standard. No, 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 okay. no. And I, this is wrong. This I have to contest this, Sam. But, okay, I'd but, say but, but Google you, was funded let me, let me, let by public money. So was iPhone, and they the public should Russell, own it if they pay for it. Let me just it. lay out what I. Th- I think most people most people feel this. Most capitalists feel this, that there's a, a difference between getting wealthy by by if you're James Cameron and you create you know the Terminator franchise, right? Um, that's okay to get wealthy doing that, um, because we all want to see you know fun movies every summer, right? So so what, what could be wrong with that? And yet the person who cures cancer shouldn't get wealthy, right? There's something corrupting about about getting wealthy in the service of uh, a, a true benefit to humanity, right? The person who's running a, a, uh, a global relief organization that's responding to famines in Africa, that the CEO of that charity shouldn't be making $5 million a year, but, this, but the CEO of, of General Motors should be because how else are you going to recruit them? And what we have with that dis- with that double standard, we systematically recruit less talented people to solve our most pressing social and and, and uh, scientific problems. Right. Uh, so we 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 because no, we give every we give every smart. Let me just let me just land the plane here. We give every smart per- college student a forced choice between getting rich by working for Goldman Sachs. Or following what might might in fact be their their ethical vocation into philanthropy, but making a, a an obvious economic sacrifice at the outset. No matter how high they get in the organization, running you know c- care or you know uh, doctors without borders, they know they're not going to get rich because that there's a taboo around doing that. And again, this, this is an incentive problem. I think we probably want our smartest people working on our hardest problems. And it's not obvious how to incentivize them apart, apart from requiring requiring that they be saints. What? And I don't think, I think we're, I think saints are in short supply. Because we are not organizing society to generate them. Now I would say that if we, prioritize materialistic models, materialistic rewards and incentivization models that are predicated on that modality, then we will be doubling down on this false progressivist mist and myth that's driving us ever further towards the kind of apocalypse that both of us, I think, sense is coming in, in different ways. You for this set of reasons, me for that set of reasons. And I would say that, you know, well, let's face it, the, the main reason that we're having this conversation, Sam, other than both guys that like having a chat and we love the jujitsu and we can handle a, a, a gentle quarrel uh, is to talk about your waking up app. Now, what is the point of meditating if it is simply to make yourself a more efficient unit within a pre-established machine that's only going to evolve along predetermined lines? The reason I meditate is because I believe in change. I believe in the ability of, to change myself, to become a better man, to overcome my previous limitations, foibles and flaws. And I believe in radical change for society. When I say radical change, I don't mean disruption change that's going to hurt people. I mean, true progress, way inclusive progress, where we're able to look at the big picture and say, whilst this aspect of the pandemic period was a reasonable error to have made, this one appears like the type of error that benefited certain institutions and interests. Whilst this part of the narrative is being excluded, perhaps in good faith, it seems to me that this is being de-amplified precisely because it does offer a challenge to globalist interests. I'm 
what I want is a, a society where you are absolutely free to believe whatever you want. I'm free to believe wherever I want. And we only need to argue where our shared interests are being challenged on that. And these are, and I reckon we would find that that's not so many issues as we might assume. And one of the ways we might get there and where I'm surely we agree is on the subject of meditation and by the method of meditation. I meditate in order to access dimensions, uh, framings, phenomena, frequencies, even space that is inaccessible to me if I remain within the rational, logistical, materialistic part of my mind. Why, why do you meditate, Sam? And why should we meditate? Mm. Well, so, so, the main reason to meditate, I, mean, there, I think there are two doorways into meditation and just finding it of interest and paying attention to it long enough to discover that there's a, a there there. Um, the first door could just be intellectual curiosity, wanting to know what's real about the nature of the mind. I mean, it just makes sense. If you want to understand yourself better and the nature of your own experience better, it makes sense to pay attention to it. And meditation is really just the act of paying close attention to what it's like to be you moment to moment. So I, th I think you can get there purely on the basis of intellectual interest, but the most common route, and I think the, the route that is certainly more persuasive to, to most of us is the doorway of, of psychological suffering. I mean, becoming interested in the mechanics of your own suffering, which is how is it that thoughts about the past or the future can exert this, this overwhelmingly coercive influence on your mood in the present, right? You think about something you regret or that embarrasses, embarrasses you, or you think about something in the future that, that you're worried about that produces anxiety. How is it that that change in the character of your mind is accomplished and is it necessary, right? Is there an alternative to that? Is there a way of relating to the flow of thought such that you don't get pushed around in, in the same way? And what is it that gets pushed around? You know, is there is there an, a self in the middle of of this storm that is uh, actually vulnerable to changes in experience, or is there just experience? Uh, and are you just identical to the the totality of experience, moment to moment? Um, and so there's there's something to discover there about the mechanics of your own unhappiness, uh, and it really is freeing. I mean, you really can be liberated from a, a certain kind of suffering. Uh, that is truly unnecessary. I mean, you know, if if you take it far enough, you discover that virtually all of your psychological suffering has been unnecessary. It's been a, it's been a kind of dream, right? It's it's it's, the, it's a very much analogous to being asleep and dreaming and not knowing it, right? You're not in the situation you you think you're in moment to moment, and that's that that discovery is is quite freeing. It's beautiful and as profound as anything I can imagine discussing. If in this realm of consciousness you can discover that you're my entire identity and all our dilemmas and indeed all culture are a kind of construct relevant only within a particular framing or within a particular paradigm, what does that suggest about the nature of consciousness and awareness? And do you ever query the perhaps unique status of consciousness given the number of times it brings us to 
dead ends of inquiry, i.e. where does it come from? What is the significance mm. of the presence of a conscious observer in sort of sub-particular experimentation, obviously and most particularly in the, the instance of the double slit experiments and variations and progressions of that experiment. And the recent uh, Nobel Prize in physics that discovered that there, there ultimately is no local reality, or at least posits that. It's a pretty difficult thing mm. to prove. And and, and, and I, I ask this, Sam, in particular in relation to what you've just said, that you can experientially and subjectively free yourself. Like, you know, given the last half hour, you and I have gone, oh, I think this, I think that, or oh, the war's this, the war's that, or oh, the pandemic was this, pandemic's that. And both of us are saying, ultimately, it is all a construct. Surely this will participate in the provision of a solution for the previous bloody 40 minutes. Mm. Yes. Uh, well, I wish it were that easy. I, mean, it's I think easy. much it's of it is extremely difficult. No, but even even in success, I mean, just to take take the examples of success where, um, you know, I, I've had, I was lucky enough to study with some of the greatest meditation teachers of the of the twentieth late twentieth century. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in India and Nepal studying with with people. I mean, I had teachers who spent. 20 years in a cave, right? I mean, like these wonderful Tibetan lamas who in the meditation space are analogous to the, you know, Hiron and Henner we just spoke about in jujitsu, right? You get on the mat with Hiron and Henner and you know you're in the pr presence of knowledge that you don't have and a kind of refinement of technique and, and expertise that took, uh, certainly took 10,000 hours to accomplish. And, and it might also require a certain kind of natural talent, right? Maybe, you know, maybe not everyone can be as good as, as, uh, the, the best people. Uh, certainly if there's a, there's, you know, if it's like analogous to anything else in human life, there's a range for, for talent. Um, but many of these people, I would say all of these people, and I tell, if I, if I think of the greatest meditation masters I ever studied with, you know, at least one of them might have thought the world was flat, right? I mean, like, like these are people who are not educated about you know, with respect to 21st century science or politics or you know anything else we've been we've been touching upon here. And there's nothing about getting really good at untying the knot of self that that necessarily gives you specific knowledge about any domain of expertise that we need to explore in order to solve our our specific problems right so to just take like what what does it take to identify a pathogen that's jumping from bats into humans and make that no longer be a problem or well, what what is it going to take for us to solve the the uh, have a little look around the, the wuhan laboratory for infectious diseases right. and check out how it's funded yeah, no, no, I, and I, how I, it's I'm regulated what i'm saying but, but, but sam more important than that okay. mate i'm saying this, they, these are these are domains of relative knowledge no, that, of course, that of have course. to be solved but, on their own terms but to use your own argument if you can undo the knot of self then surely you will acknowledge that all that takes place on the material plane in this shared cultural space which is nothing more than an amalgam of our shared cultural and personal experiences the marketplace of ideas the media meteorology of all of these colliding entities, all of which have passed through the consciousness of individuals <laughs> just the same as you and I, be they historic or be mm -hmm. they present now. This is our shared experience. Uh, to, to quote uh, the, the, the Oscar, the famous quote uh, around Schindler there, he who changes one life changes the world entire. If we begin to change the uh, prakriti, the prima materia of reality, consciousness mm -hmm. itself, we can of course adapt and evolve systems. They will have to reflect those 
those changes in reality. Even you are talking about a shared hysteria when it comes to the phenomena of Donald Trump. Oh, in spite of all this, he didn't do a peaceful transition. Yet somehow he reaches deep down into the spiritual cojones of pretty near 50% of Americans and they don't give a shit. Now, if we can't find a way of hacking, bypassing, this constant conflagration, we are doomed. Otherwise, what is it? 50% are going to subjugate the other 50%? Is that the solution? Not going to happen, is it? We're going to have a civil war? Are we ever going to have an election in your country again that doesn't end with the other side going, oh, it was Russiagate, oh, it was stolen? That's just that's just the deal now. So we have to find something else. Where else is it going to come from? This is a time to revivify the spiritual traditions and to note that all of these traditions emerge out of cultures where they believe in a deep union Unitive experience that what you experience, and of course, there's no way of proving this, and I'm sure that you, as a sort of a, uh, I don't mean this offensively, materialist rationalist, will say that your inner peace is a contrivance of neurological stuff that's highly personal and just within your personal skin. And I would offer what you experience in that meditative peace is what I experience in that meditative peace. There is a true unity. And from that place, from our shared humanity, the same way as skeletally, you and I are more or less the same in spite of our superficial cutaneous differences, we can find some archetypal unity to share together, to build upon. Now, I know it doesn't. that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to become experts in building nuclear power stations or whatever particular solution you or I might think we should pursue. But it does mean we might be able to establish a crucible of good intent based on that. Otherwise, what is the point? Personal peace while the world yeah. burns. No, no. So, so I, I think there are two levels, at least two levels on which we have to address this these existential problems. Right. One is the individual level. And and the other is the, a, the level that you have addressed at various points here of systems and their consequences. And these are di these are fundamentally different, which is to say that no matter how good you get at playing the individual game of untangling your problems and and untying your knots, right? Again, you could you could spend twenty years in a cave and come out you know radiantly happy and filled with compassion and just having nothing but good intentions for the world, and yet. All you have uh, you have not you have not done anything that necessarily has much greater significance until you can interface with a with a system level and make change at that level. And the reason why the systems are so important, and I, and I would argue that the the greatest ethical and political changes we're going to make are going to be at the system level, because what we have what we need are systems where. That systems that make it easier and easier for ordinary conflicted people to behave better and better, to behave more and more like saints. And what we have are systems very much of the time that are so per perversely incentivized that you essentially have to be a saint to behave like a normal human being, right? Uh, it, it may take social media, take something like Twitter or what used to be known as Twitter. The reason why I left Twitter is I was experiencing it as a space where completely normal people were incentivized to behave like psychopaths. I mean, I would I would look at my Twitter feed, and I I would I would I recognized, and it took me way too long to recognize this, but I recognized after some years that I was staring into a funhouse mirror where people were showing me their most grotesque faces. And I just knew there couldn't be that many psychopaths in the world, but I was seeing psychopath after psychopath in my Twitter feed. 
you know, coming from the left, coming from the right, the most toxically dishonest behavior. Uh, it was just gaslighting and insanity. Um, and I, I recognized that this was having an effect on me. I didn't want to see, I, I didn't want, I didn't want this, this false advertisement on an hourly basis to be getting into my head where I was get, I was forming an image of humanity that I actually believe was inaccurate, right? But yet people were behaving terribly in ways that they never would behave in person, right? Because I, I, I knew it. The reason why I knew it for sure is that I had met some of these people in person, right? I had dinner with some of these people and yet they're professionally behaving like psychopaths because of the incentives that Twitter w w was delivering to them. So my point is, Twitter is a system, you know, among many systems. Social media is a system. And what we need, we need a, in, in this case, we need a system of communication that is making it easier and easier for even normal people to have truly enlightened and enlightening conversations where the, where the wisdom is built into the system layer, right? We have the opposite of that. We have the corruption and the dishonesty and the bad incentives built into the system layer where you basically, you have to be, you know, fucking Gandhi, not to be an asshole on Twitter, at least some of the time. Right. And so that's uh, the, the, in answer to your question, no matter how good you get at the meditation game privately and personally, no matter how ethical you get privately and personally, you society is still going to be at the mercy of bad systems. And we have to, so we have to, you know, I, I, we have to pay, play both games. We, you, the reason why that you play the individual game and and commit so much so much time and attention to that is because it is the closest point of contact to the difference between happiness and suffering. In your case, when you wake up in the morning at four in the morning and are are, are the prisoner of your thoughts. Right. There is no there's there's no not only is, is the system not going to help you, your friends can't even help you. Your family can't help you. You are alone in the privacy of your own mind. Right. You are all of us are in solitary confinement all the time with respect to our own mind. And only only a technique of uh, like meditation that allows you to, to break the spell of your identification with thought can help you there. And that help does does play out in, in how you are in the rest of your life. But again, it's not going to solve our system level problems if, if millions of us start meditating. It just it, won't. Well, there are there is actually some data to suggest that it will, funded by the David Lynch Foundation in Chicago. And I will I won't send you those studies because when this ends, I'll right. bloody well forget this happened. But Sam, now listen, you beautiful man. This is what I'm no. saying is that perhaps the reason that these esoteric traditions have always existed from the Rishis to the Sufis to the saints is because they intuit and perhaps even experience that subject subjectivity can be a portal to a universal experience. But this transcendence of self that gives us relief from the incarceration of the ego, from the uh, enchilade of ever carooming thoughts that become unbearable, ricocheting off the walls of the ego this can be undone through these practices perhaps because we access an mm. ulterior power curious to me that each tradition has its own version be it via the mantra or the breath a way out the only way out is in it's curious too that these uh, traditions often accrue moral and ethical principles that find perennial truth and this perennial truth on a pragmatic mm. level sam on a pragmatic level we should believe in this in a pra on a pragmatic 
pragmatic level, we shouldn't, we should apply the rigor of investigation mm. and the zeal of faith to what we discover in those spaces. Because what you said uh, about that's the only place that can find you peace, you know, uh, where you can find peace and sucker is no, with a double C-O-U-R, not K-E-R, uh, peace and sucker is in that intimacy. That sem semantics aside is no different from what anyone that believes in God would tell one another. There within you, there, mm. there is the deep imminence. There is the imminent and transcendent, that peculiar paradox that plays out between waves and particles plays out within you. There down in the Vedas, we find in poetics that which could never be tracked through materialistic observation, for we do not have the instruments when it comes to the apparently external world. But within there are solutions. Now, I believe, I have to believe that this will map onto reality before reality surely is a projection of our faith and belief. If it comes to design or culture or music, all things conceived of and constructed in this space that can be a personal hell or a private heaven can be projected out with via, via the will, via the will. You can't, you mm. can will yourself to do many things, but you can't will yourself to will. And I feel that if personally and individually we endeavor in good faith to find this new resource, this accessible and often ignored latent resource, we can solve precisely the problem that you and I have been talking around. How do we get beyond these silos? How do we overcome this cultural cynicism? How is How do we get beyond this cavalcade of my experts versus your experts, my flag versus your flag? By acknowledging that we are all an expression of one unitary force. And if we, if we want to neglect that conclusion, then all we are going to do is sit on the fireside of Armageddon and just sort of say, well, I was right. No, I was right. And that doesn't seem like a nice way to go out. I mean, I've got kids. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, so I, the re there's a reason why I resist the religious framing of these transcendent experiences. I, I do not doubt the, the importance and the accessibility of the transcendent experiences themselves, because I've had them and I have them, right? So, I, and it's 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 patently obvious to me that the ego, as it is generally experienced, is an illusion, yeah. right? And on the other side of of dispelling that illusion, there's this landscape of mind that is well worth exploring, and and meditation is one way to do that. Psychedelics are another way. Um, there's a there's a very um, interesting conversation about uh, to have about how those two projects are related, mm -hmm. uh, but um, I would say that we should be slow to make metaphysical assertions about how all of this th this this landscape of experience relates to the cosmos at large. So it's like somebody like Deepak Chopra is very quick to say, okay, this experience of consciousness without ego is what preceded the big bang right like he'll just jump into co cosmology right there i see no reason to do that one it, it doesn't seem intellectually honest for me to do that i mean there's nothing about this insight into the freedom of consciousness prior to egocentricity there's nothing about that that tells you about quantum mechanics or about cosmology or about the, the status of the, the singularity that preceded space-time right um, and it doesn't resolve any of the the paradoxes or disputes in any of those specific fields. Uh, what it does do is tell you something very direct about what you are subjectively. Like there, there are objective claims we can make about human subjectivity, 
right? We can say there, there, there's an infinite number of things we can say about the nature of, of the mind from the first person side, from the, the felt, the side of felt experience that are not merely subjective. They're actually objective. Like you, 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 these are, you can make claims about the way the mind is for, through direct experience. And for instance, you can make a, a claim about impermanence, right? Every, every state of mind you've ever had prior to this moment has arisen and passed away, right? You know, the anger you felt two weeks ago isn't here anymore, right? And if it comes back in the next moment, that's a newly arising phenomenon, which again will pass away. And it's connect the connection to its, the connection between the feeling and the thoughts is something that we can inspect from a first person side and make objective claims about, right? So this is, I'm not saying this is all uh, a, a space where there's no truth. There are very deep truths, first yes. person truths to be discovered here, but they're different truths than the truths of cosmology. Well, absolutely, of course, of course. But on that point, Sam, they are. Let me offer you this: there are also sort of medical claims about sort of you know wellness, blood pressure, cardiovascular benefits that could be made that could not possibly have been medically understood by the people that conceived of these techniques, and yet somehow they knew. And yet somehow they knew. And I don't think that we can just extract these these technologies from their traditions without honoring and acknowledging many of the what they declared to be the implications of this technology. Love, particularly when they are such beautiful declarations. Love, beauty, unity. Mm. Now, whilst you say that you, you know it's um, fanciful and doubtless conjecture to make cosmological claims on the basis of a personal subjective experience in meditation, it is similarly conjecture to say that there is nothing before the Big Bang. There's exactly the same amount of proof. Yeah. One of them is optimistic. One of them is pessimistic. I see as much zeal and devoutness in the realm of materialism, and in, to some degree, it's been sort of offered many times that you know notable and brilliant atheists like yourself and Hitchens and Dawkins, all men that I uh, very much revere and respect, and I know that mm. you know stuff I don't know. But there is certainly a devoutness to the I don't want to call it pessimism because that's, that's unfair and it's pejorative, but the materialism and the rationalism and the insistence. That just because the the because what I offer is this: there are realms and frequencies for which we do not have the instruments. But because we don't have the instruments, mm. that doesn't mean the data isn't there. And even someone a much more sort of popular and populist in a different sense figure like Neil deGrasse Tyson or Brian Cox, you know, friends of mine in sort of science entertainment, say you know stuff like if it can't be measured, it isn't there, and eventually we will be able to hold this knowledge. But knowledge is limitless. The potential for knowledge is infinite and we will remain finite yet in this space where we transcend the personal personal self i believe that we do exactly access a super state of possibilities and certainly you know if you can create a cultural bloody phenomena like pokemon go or bloody like you know, mm. or, or jesus christ the excitement and fanfare around the super bowl you can use this prima materia this prakriti to create better cultures particularly if there's a goodwill about it and also, I would say that down here in this place, we meet to the archetypes. We meet the perennial. We meet stories, folklore and dreams, which while being certainly housed within the metaphysical, have enough ubiquity, I would suggest, Sam, to warrant investigation. And, and, and even if investigation isn't the right tool, maybe this short, abrupt, yet beautiful word, faith. Mm.
Well, so I, I take a slightly different line through this than, than the one you expect. I, I've, I'm not a devout materialist of the sort that you imagine. I, I just see that there's a third option, which is to acknowledge what you don't know, right? I, I think we all stand before a, a an ocean of ignorance, and we broadcast across that ocean rather often metaphysical claims that are unwarranted right we do science at the uh, on the seashore and we we explore the the the, you know, the ocean with respect to uh certain physicalist assumptions but we also science is bigger than that ultimately if if physicalism is limited and it turns out to be untrue or partial or or otherwise misleading we will there will be a rational accounting of that of how we we wandered into error there right it's not it's not irrational to speculate that maybe mind is not what it seems right and maybe it's dependency on the brain is not what it seems right so that all of this all of this is fair game but to pretend to know any specific thing to be true in this area i think is intellectually dishonest yeah and sp specifically but there's but but this is the one piece that is truly seditious with respect to the religious project and which is the basis of my atheism is one thing we one thing that the jury is not is no longer out on is the merely human origins of our religious institutions and our religious literature and because they broadcast their their provinciality and their merely human origins on every page you read the bible and ask yourself how hard would it have been for an omniscient being to have put in a single page of this text evidence of his omniscience it would be trivially easy to have done that and there's not a single passage like that in the bible everything in the bible could have been written by a first century human being or a, a or somebody who lived in the fifth century bc or 1000 bc depending on on what book we're talking about and so it is with every other religious scripture so what we know what we know is that the foundational claims certainly of abrahamic religion of of judaism christianity and islam the foundational claim that the that the, a specific book has a a, a non-human origin right that is the claim that gives you judaism christianity and islam it, we know that that claim is is specious and and indefensible at this point in history and what we need therefore is a truly 21st century conversation about everything we've been talking about, about the possibility of self-transcendence, its implications for running a sane society. How do we get billions of people to, to solve these coordination problems of cooperation and converge on common projects so as to not make themselves needlessly miserable? All of this is a project that requires a 21st century intellectually honest framing. And so the reason why I dispense with religion to, to, to begin that conversation is that all of our religious scriptures are intrinsically at odds with one another. They're mutually incompatible. They are, they are, they are, they are divide. Their, their divisiveness is right there on the surface, right? I mean, to, to take one example, I mean, I, I hear, I see that you're resisting this claim. Stop being a Bible but, Grinch. You're Bible but, Grinching. But no, you're Quran Grinching. Because no, I would say this, but even like, pander, look at your... No, but what, Come on, Russell, you already know if you're going to you pander know. to the religious, if you're going to if you're going to pander to the religious biases of traditional religious people, right? I, if you're going to tell Muslims that they're not wrong to be Muslim and Christians that they're not wrong to be Christian, right? That these are totally valid projects. I believe that they're what right. you have done is is enshrine a zero sum contest between Muslims and Christians because Islam and Christianity at their core 
are incompatible. Sad. And I'll tell you why. At their core, Jesus, Christian, every Christian, real Christian asserts that Jesus was divine. And every real Muslim asserts that he wasn't. How do you square that zero-sum contest? I you would, can't. How I would do this, honestly, how I would do this is I would say that your unconscious framing, when you say from a 21st century perspective, enshrines the notion of progressivism, that we're at some current apex now, rather than a temporal gateway, a liminal space, where we, like the Hellenists who had to address the peculiar motions mm -hmm. of the spheres, were precisely inverse to what they had assumed, like those that preceded Galileo, who had to acknowledge that a Amidst the devices and new lenses, new realms have been uncovered. We cannot we cannot judge the semantic devices that, by which these models and modalities are interpreted in the same way that we might adjudicate their cultural and social baggage, i.e. your numerous yogis and Sufis and their 20-year spells in caves that I hope were free of bats because that's apparently the only way anyone can catch COVID. Mm. I hope that, that they may not have been able to describe and delineate those experiences using the limited tool of language. But I would say there is sufficient data in Buddhism, in Hinduism, in Islam, in Judaism and Christianity to suggest that what we have to overcome is precisely the individual that you have made a personal discovery about with your own meditative journey. That oh, the cultural mm -hmm. afflictions and inflections of a religion are an easy way to dismiss them. But I think what is lost in that analysis is real hope, real God. And what I mean by God is love mm. and, out the, and the hope and possibility that somehow yeah. we can turn the tide of this thing. For me, it doesn't matter if you are an atheist. Some of my greatest teachers are atheists. But what matters to me is that we revere and honor and resacralize the earth. Otherwise, how do we save it? They're like, hello, everyone. Nothing means anything. You're going to die. You're in limitless mm. space. Now, for God's sake, do something about climate change. Why? Who gives a fuck? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, because God is real. You are God. The earth is real. The earth is God. We are participating in a miracle right now. Now sit down and meditate and learn to love and recognize that you are the number one problem in your life. And then we can start overcoming some of this bullshit. It doesn't matter if someone loves Trump. It doesn't matter if someone hates Trump. What matters is love itself. Now, come on, let's get on with this bullshit. Now, if we can't have that kind of conversation, we're just going to sit watching the plane go down, Sam, and just you know, qu qu querying who the pilot was. Is it consciousness itself or was it CIA-sponsored agents that came out of Saudi Arabia or did they come out of Iraq and what are we in this war for anyway, baby? Well, it's not going to surprise you that I think it's a little more complicated than that, but it's I agree with you about the power of love. The, 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 I, I totally agree with you about the primacy and the power of love. But yeah, we, we need to acknowledge that culture is a kind of operating system yes. that we're all entangled with. Yes. And it's possible to have a pathological culture. And I yes. think you would agree that, yes. we're, that we have culture, we have we're suffering from the pathologies of culture. And it is therefore possible to have love, real love, channeled in ways that are pathological. Right. I mean, so, I mean, to take, take, this is, you know, a topic I occasionally am forced to return to. It's happily, it's been many years since it's been in the news in, in a big way, but you take the link between, between the doctrine of jihadism in Islam and suicidal terrorism. 
the link is very direct, despite the fact that many people on the left would would doubt it. Um, it's by no means all economics and politics driving people to be jihadists and, and suicidal terrorists in the Muslim world. Um, ask yourself about the state of mind of a jihadist just before he pushes the button on his bomb when he's on a bus filled with with um, non-combatants or he's you know about to fly a plane into a building or, or any other moment of so where he's about to commit a suicide what is from the outside <laughs> i think appropriately judged as a suicidal atrocity i think it is actually quite likely that that person is experiencing real ecstasy real love real love for his fellow muslims a real expectation of entering paradise but real friend, faith real joy my friend real, okay so what does that matter my, my point okay, is but sam my, i can't my, recognize my, what you're saying i'm not stupid i've worked out the rest of this conversation sam like well what do you think the drone operator in nevada is thinking when they bomb a bunch of muslim kids in iraq does it matter it's the same death it's the same system no, no. one set of deaths rationally my, undergirded my one set of deaths ecstatically undergirded what's the difference between enough. ecstasy and that, rationalism same dead children no, no, that you're you're you're, you're taking the wrong side of my point. That's not the point I'm making. The, my point is, love isn't enough, right? You could because you can love can be channeled it's pathologically. Grata, even yeah. So 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 love is love is absolutely necessary for a good life, but it's not sufficient, right? But uh, a, a, a sense of community, a sense of community, a sense of a sense of solidarity with other human beings is, I would say, generally necessary for a good life. It's not sufficient. Right. You can be you can you can be you can be feeling love and solidarity as a Nazi among Nazis. Right. <laughs> that is a that is a psychologically possible frame of mind. We need to discourage no, Nazism not love, among actually. many other things. It's not real love. At the, no, at the I, cultural I, actually, level. Sam, I'm going to contest that mad claim because uh, whilst I acknowledge, you don't think you don't think it's possible for a Nazi to love his children and love his wife and love, his, were, and love Wagner. I've looked a lot. Shed a Nazis. tear over Wagner at the end of the day. This is what I would say: the Nazis were clearly in their giddy genocide, having a hell of a time. But what I would suggest is, if Nazis were instructed in the true nature of love, that that might have given them. It, some recourse and some pause in their dreadful genocidal project. And I would say there's more than one way to skin a cat. And like the, the motives and, and psychological state of a jihadi, as opposed to the psychological state of people running neat, neat, and beautiful little rational drones, is of no comfort to those on the arse end of murder, whether it's rationally oh, and state-sanctioned, yeah, yeah. or no. whether it's sanctioned by an ecstatic religious experience. Listen, let's meditate together, because it's late in my country, and I've got home. I've got like three kids. Okay. My youngest yeah, yeah. kid's like four sleep, weeks. Sleep not, is the ultimate meditation. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I will be actually meditating as well. Should we do a quick meditation now? Me and you, like you lead it. Sure. Oh, sure. We're going to leave now. Those of us on our locals platform, me and Sam are going to do a meditation. Let us demonstrate that in spite of differences, we can find unity and peace in a meditative space. Uh, you can join us by clicking the red link and join us over on locals. Stay free. <laughs> We can't make our wonderful content or put on events like Community without our wonderful sponsors. Mudwater is a coffee alternative with four adaptogenic mushrooms and Ayurvedic herbs. Plus, it contains only a fraction of the stinking caffeine in a dirty old cup of coffee. So you get the energy without them terrible jitters, baby. And wouldn't you love to have the hit of coffee without that crash? Each ingredient in here was added for a purpose. Instead of just put things in for a laugh, cacao and chai for mood and a hint of caffeine. 
caffeine. Lion's mane to support focus. Cordyceps to support physical performance. Chaga and reishi to support your immune system. And cinnamon, dirty Christmassy filth for antioxidants. It tastes like masala chai and cacao made a really healthy lully baby. Mud water is whole 30 approved, thank God. 100% USDA organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan and kosher certified. Mud water donates monthly to the Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics as they believe the country is in a mental health epidemic and sees psychedelics as a useful tool for individuals with depression, PTSD, anxiety, and other mental health experiences. To get 15% off, go to mudwater.com forward slash community. Use the code community15. Delicious.